Okay, we're reading from Joshua, chapter 24, verses 1 to 15. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, we're here in the middle of a series that we're calling Verses You Should Memorize and Why. Uh, realizing that there are certain passages in the Bible that make themselves onto cross-stitched pillows or plaques on walls in cottage living rooms. And, and why are these verses chosen? And we're going to take a look over the series about not only the value of them, but maybe a little bit of a corrective sometimes if we haven't understood them properly. Now, I think that the, the tail end of the reading that Teresa just did for us here is perhaps might take the prize for the most classic of all, kitschy home decor. As for me and my house... 
we will serve the Lord. And here's many different versions, and some of you might have this in your home, or maybe your parents have it in their home, or you've been to a cottage, and there it is above the doorpost. It's this verse, it makes its way. I found this image. I was like, imagine being invited to these people's house. It's just like, as for me and my house, like, oh my gosh, a little bit of pressure. Um, but as I was looking for some images, I found out with a great alternate, alternate to this verse uh, that I think everyone can agree with. As for me and my house, we will serve tacos. Salsa, 24-7. I like that one. No one's going to argue. No one's going to feel uncomfortable with that one. As long as they're vegetarian tacos, I guess. So what do we, what do we just heard in this passage from Joshua 24? Well, Joshua here is leading the nation of Israel. He's kind of leading the, the people. He calls them all together. And he starts off, before he gets to his challenge, with a, basically a, a high-level history of what God has been doing with his people. So it begins in the land of Ur, where Abraham's father, Terah, was worshiping other gods. He goes on to talk about how that family moved up to Haran, and God called Abraham to leave his family. And he gave him this promise of being kind of the father of great many nations. And, but from that place, the, the, the people of Israel became enslaved in Egypt. And while in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Then, Joshua says, quoting God's words, You lived in the wilderness for a long time. And I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. So he's giving them this high-level history of this is all that has happened, the whole history of your people here. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now let's just flag the whole military displacement piece for now, and we'll come back to that a little later on. But the Israelites had come a long way, and God, the God of Israel had gone ahead of them. And so Joshua brings them to this place. They're about to take over this territory. They're about to begin this new way of life, and he brings them to this place. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And honestly, it seems like that would be the right thing to do, given all that God had done. If God had seriously called Abraham to this place, if God had rescued them for Egypt, if God had led them through the wilderness, if God had given them all of this land and these, these vineyards and this fruit and all the rest of it, if God has done all of this stuff, it seems like the right thing to do would be to throw away whatever other gods there are and worship God. But Joshua doesn't say that that's the way it has to go. There's a choice to be made. And in verse 15, the first part of verse 15 but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. For good or ill, God doesn't force his will on us, but gives us a choice, invites us to choose our own path. Psychologist Eric Fromm writes that the only criterion for the realization of freedom is whether or not the individual actively participates in determining his life and the life of society. Which is to say that our choices matter, and they matter not only for our individual selves, but for the society that we live in as well. What the head of a household decided, Joshua knew, would impact his entire family. And what an aggregate of families decided would impact the entire nation but they had to make a choice on their own. Joshua couldn't force them to be obedient. He couldn't force them to follow a certain path, but he leads by example. As for me and my house, he says at the conclusion of his speech, we will serve the Lord. Now I was working on this sermon 
while sitting in various hospital waiting rooms this week. Yes, again this week. Melissa had a second surgery in the last two weeks, and she's doing better. She's not here this morning because she's at a baseball diamond, uh, not because she's ill. But uh, I was sitting there in these hospital rooms writing about, as for me and my house, and, and just thinking about about how much family matters to us and how when it comes down to it at the end of the day, it's like just we would do anything for the people that we love. There was, she was going to at some point before she had a CAT scan have to drink this disgusting drink. It tastes like, like liquid chalk. And I was like, I wish I could drink it for you, but it wouldn't help, you know. But we would. We feel like we would just do anything for the people that are close to us. And we're reminded too, and I think one of the reasons that this passage is worth memorizing is that it reminds us that faith can never truly be a private faith because it affects the lives of those closest to us. When we are in close relationship with people, whatever we do, the decisions that we make, they impact the lives of the people close to us. For the Israelites, heads of households would make decisions for their family. And so Joshua's commitment was to provide spiritual leadership for his household. Now, I don't know, I imagine there's a handful of people here this morning that are kind of tired of me talking about his household already, so we'll just acknowledge that. I came up with a great little image here. Men might be the head of the household, but women are the neck. We make it turn any way we want. Lovely little violent image there for everyone. But that's the way that it was. That's the way that it was uh, when this passage was written for sure. And so Joshua says, I'm going to make this decision. My house is going to follow in step. On a day when we honor the mothers and mother figures in our lives, I think we have a heightened awareness of just how much influence someone in a parental role can have. And I have no interest in pitting men against women when it comes to household authority or responsibility. And honestly, I think so much of that conversation misses the point that every one of us has an important role in the way that faith plays out in the lives of those closest to us. I think that's what we need to get from this. What role are you playing, and this goes for everyone in this room, what role are you playing to help, to encourage, to inspire your household to serve the Lord? It can take all kinds of different um, forms, of course. Are you praying for your family? Do you, uh, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God? Just a shout out to last week's sermon, right? Are you lifting up your members of your family in prayer? Are you encouraging them? Are you someone who is encouraging them in their own walk of faith? Are you modeling faith? If you were to take a look at your life, would you say that the fruit of the Spirit, that love, that joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Would you say that those kinds of things are being modeled in your home? That's part of what it means to have an example of faith. Are you creating a safe space in your family for people to make their own choices and follow their own paths? What about the priorities that you are setting in your life? The way that you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the things that you care about? Are you demonstrating the kinds of priorities that you hope others in your family would also embrace? Are you challenging members of your family to follow the hard road of of Jesus, of the cross, of making sacrifices, of being willing to give things up for the sake of a greater good? These and all kinds of other ways are the different ways that every member of every family can have that influence of faith. A couple of months ago, maybe, I was reading uh, this book that I'm just chipping away at uh, from time to time by an author named Ronald Rollheiser. The book is called The Holy Longing, and he posed a question that I think is a really significant one. He asks, what do we do when those whom we love no longer share our faith? 
our deep values and our morals. And I want to acknowledge the deeply personal nature of this, but I was always thinking about our church community and, and of course, the people that I know and love in this family of faith. I was thinking about how the reality is to talk about something like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's easier said than done in some cases because not everyone here is, makes that a priority. Not everyone and every household really wants to serve the Lord. That may not be something that is part of their life. And so I want to acknowledge the deeply personal nature of this. But I also want to read something from this book that I was reading, a bit of a response. Now he says, listen, yeah, there are a lot of ways that you can go ahead when, when people in your family don't share your faith. Uh, some of these examples that I've already read, for example, praying for them, being encouraging, you know, modeling faith, and all these other things. But he says there's something else that you can do as well. You can continue to love and forgive them. And insofar as they receive that love and forgiveness from you, they are receiving love and forgiveness from God. You are part of the body of Christ, and they are touching you. If you are a member of the body of Christ, when you forgive someone, he or she is forgiven. If you hold someone in love, he or she is held to the body of Christ. If a child, or a brother, or a sister, or a loved one of yours strays from the church in terms of faith, practice, and morality, as long as you continue to love that person and hold him or her in union and forgiveness, he or she is touching the hem of the garment, is held to the body of Christ, and is forgiven by God. Your touch is Christ's touch. And I found those words just, those words just so encouraging and life-giving for those who would love to say, me and my household are serving the Lord when not everyone is. You know, I think they speak to a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, and, and Paul is writing about marriage specifically, and he's trying to cast this vision for marriage where we're not going to break these bonds at all. But then he goes on to acknowledge that, well, okay, some, what about a situation where, where there's someone where you no longer share faith in a marriage? Does it, does it mean that you're, you're committed to that marriage, or are you free from that? And he says this, and he acknowledges this is more my thinking than God here. But he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with them, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Again, this hope and this love and this, you know what, I'm just going to continue to love and pursue God and, and pursue what God's will is for my family. And now I, I was reading this and I was thinking about, I want to talk about this. I want to acknowledge the reality of it. And I can imagine some at least internally raised eyebrows at this. Um, saying, well, are we encouraging, you know, aren't we encouraging people to say, like, well, just let them follow your own path. Isn't that what Joshua said? Just make your own choice. But I think that if you understand that if there's someone in your family who doesn't share your faith, that if their faith matters at all to them, of course they're going to want you to share that. Of course they're going to want you to be on the same page as they are. And so I think that's something that maybe those who wouldn't share the faith with many in this room can acknowledge, that this matters a lot to them. And I appreciate and can respect that. And I'd also encourage those who don't share their family's faith to say, to encourage you to let Joshua's words remind you of how significant this commitment is for your loved ones. That this is something that matters a lot, that is really central and, and core to their lives. And I was thinking about what it means to belong to our family of faith here, right? You can be a part of Elevation regardless of your individual beliefs. And regardless of those beliefs, you're still able to actively contribute to the theological vision of our community as a whole. And the same thing happens with a family. Even if you don't believe the same things as the members of your family, you can still actively contribute to a shared vision together. 
Now, I want to acknowledge, I mean, would it be easier if your entire household was on the same page with respect to faith? Well, almost certainly it would. But at the same time, is there anything more annoying than a perfect family? Right? I mean, who wants to be friends with these people? I don't. I want to be friends with these people. I mean, that's the kind of family I want to hang out with, right? Kids are like wild animals. Yes, that's more real right there. In fact, this last week, actually, when we were sitting in another waiting room, Melissa kind of whispered to me. She said, uh, Harry and Megan had their baby. And I was like, sorry, who? And she's like, Harry and Megan had their baby. And I'm sitting there realizing my hearing's just not the, what it used to be years ago. And I said, I'm sorry. I know I've asked this twice already. I said, can you just repeat that? Who had a baby? I'm thinking, I don't know anybody named Harry and Megan. She's like, Prince Harry. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's a thing. Um, so... So I was looking at pictures of their new little one, and, and this is like one of the kind of official pictures I was putting out there, and people were so happy with this picture because you can see Megan's postpartum baby bump, and they're like, oh my goodness, a real post-pregnancy picture. Like, you can see that she still looks a little pregnant after the baby's born because it really is. And they just loved the fact that she would put this. She would wear a dress that showed this. Because perceived imperfections are a perfectly normal part of the journey. And it's the same with our family. When our families aren't perfect, as none of them are, that is a normal part of the journey. More challenging? Probably. But it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of hope ahead of us. I've told this story before, but I have to go back to it because it's just such a good example. Donald Miller in his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, tells the story of how he had gone to this seminar and he was learning all the elements of a great story. And he got together after this uh, seminar and he came back and he was hanging out with a friend of his. And his friend was talking about how his daughter was going through a really rough time. She was 13 years old. They found pot in her bedroom. And he, she was dating this guy who was just no good at all. And they were just like, we've tried everything. We've grounded her. We've taken privileges away. We just, we can't think of any way to get, to get her to snap out of this. And Donald Miller says to his friend, he's like, he's like it just sounds to me like, like she's living a really bad story. And his friend's like, what are you talking about? And they stayed up for the next couple of hours talking about the elements of a story and how it seemed like, like his daughter just didn't have anything really positive to live for. And so she was kind of just grabbing on to the nearest story she could. Well, his friend stayed up through the night. He couldn't stop thinking about it. The next day, he started doing some research online, and he, and he found this orphanage in uh, this organization that was establishing orphanages in Mexico and and he was like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a great story to be a part of. And so he committed his family to raise $25,000 for this mortgage or for this, uh, for this orphanage. And he goes on to say that they actually had a second mortgage on their house. So they really didn't have the money to do this. So he sits down at dinner the next day with his wife and his 13-year-old daughter. And he tells them, he's like, I just committed us to doing this thing. And he talks about how they both stormed away from the table, his wife to one room, his daughter to another room. They were so mad at him. He didn't even mention this to his wife before he committed. But the next day, he's, tell, he's telling Donald Miller the story. He says, the next day, something amazing happened. He said, I was standing in the kitchen doing some dishes. My wife came, and she put her arms around me. And she told me she was proud of me. Donna hadn't heard Annie say anything like that in years. I told her I was sorry I didn't talk to her about it, that I just got excited. She said she forgave me, but that it didn't matter. She said we had an orphanage to build, and that we were probably going to make bigger mistakes, but that we would build it. He said, and then something amazing happened. Rachel, his 13-year-old daughter, she came into our bedroom maybe a few days later and asked if we could go to Mexico. Annie and I just sort of looked at her and didn't know what to say. Then Rachel crawled between us in the bed like she did when she was little. She said she could talk about the orphanage on her website and maybe people could help. She could post pictures. She wanted to go to Mexico to meet the kids and take pictures for her website. 
He says, and something else amazing happened. She broke up with that bum of a boyfriend. Because no girl who plays the role of a hero dates a guy who uses her. She was buying into a better story. And I think it's an example for all of us in our own family situations, whatever they look like. Can we cast a vision? Can we be part of an incredible story? And you look at whatever's going on in your family. Are you living a story that is worth people giving their lives up for? What role are you playing? So this is about me and my household. That's what this memory verse is about for sure. But what about other households? Whatever these memory verse words mean, they do not mean that we're to look after our own household and let others fend for themselves. Any notion that we are only responsible for taking care of our own is a failure to acknowledge the barriers that were torn down in Jesus. Not just barriers between race, gender, economic class, but barriers between families as well. I want to read a passage from Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, could there be a worse passage for me to read on Mother's Day? Jesus says, who is my mother? <laughs> it's like, seriously. But far from being disrespectful, Jesus was broadening our understanding of family. He wasn't dismissing them as, because he didn't care about them. He was saying, we got to stop thinking about our family as this little nuclear unit here. Our family is bigger than this. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. Scott McKnight says that the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. A family that is not bound by the traditional definitions and barriers. And so as we memorize this verse, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, we realize that that is not just talking about the people in our immediate family. And not even just our extended family, but it also broadens to the, the broader community of faith. There's this profound passage in John chapter 19 at perhaps the lowest moment in Jesus' life as he is actually hanging on the cross where we read that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So this vision that Jesus was casting of this broadening family, it begins to take place. John takes care of Mary in Jesus' absence. I don't think any of us can imagine what it would be like to hear those words spoken to us in a moment like that, but in a very real way, they have been spoken to us. They've been spoken to each one of us. And you look around you this morning, God tells us that this is our family. These are our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. This is our family of faith. But does the definition of family stop here? Is that what Jesus meant and no further? Did Jesus mean to blow up the definition of family to include just those who go to church with us? Or did he mean that it should go, go a little further yet? I love this line from Richard Rohr. He says, Jesus is a biblically formed non-Bible quoter 
who gets the deeper stream, the spirit, the trajectory of his Jewish history, and never settles for mere surface readings. So quoting this or putting it up on, on your wall as if like in me and my house and thinking that, the, that the, it ends there, then we're missing the deeper stream. And so this is where we go back to this whole military displacement that takes place in the Old Testament and, and the context in which Joshua uttered these words. But a failure to understand this deeper stream and this trajectory that Jesus identified and modeled for us will lead us to apply Joshua-esque thinking about one another instead of Jesus-esque thinking. That we can continue to act as they did in Joshua's day where the people across the river were enemies and we could just wipe them out as long as we looked out for me and my household. But Jesus says, yeah, those borders don't exist. That's not how it works anymore. Your family is broader than that. Your responsibility is broader. Last Monday night, a number of us gathered together in the parlor, and we heard Kristen Taylor share about her experiences at the U.S.-Mexico border, where she went to spend some time just listening to the stories of people who are fleeing for their lives and trying to get to safety, and she's just recording their stories. And, and we spent time around that room talking about our own identity and what does it mean to be Canadian and what, is it, what does it mean to see ourselves as other than the people who live in different parts of the world. Uh, if you're interested, I created a page on our website. If you just go to elevationwalu.org slash borders, you can read uh, some of what Kristen's written and take a look at some photos and some articles and there's, a, and there's some great links there as we continue to consider um, what it means for us to not see these borders for the way they are. With all of the benefits that being Canadian offers us, the one thing it threatens to take away is the memory that we're first and foremost human beings. And the same kind of thinking can be applied to our families. With all of the benefits that being a family offers us, it can threaten to take away the memory that the people around us are also part of our family in a very real way. I was reminded of the first views of Earth from space, which gave humanity this picture of the way things really are, without borders, without blue or red lines on maps that divide country and people groups. But here we are, all of these decades later, still trying to wrap our heads around that image and what it means for us. A family can be a beautiful thing, but when it becomes an excuse to turn a blind eye to the needs of others, it's just another barrier that needs to be torn down. My brother is home this week visiting from Cochabamba, Bolivia, and uh, many of you are familiar with the work of Ninos Convalor there, creating a family for children whose families can't or won't care for them. He's going to be hanging around afterwards, and, and if you want to join him in the parlor during the discussion time and just kind of talk about what they're doing to create broader families, we'd encourage you to join him there. And I'm going to ask Graham to come on up now, actually. He's going to share about a, a way to do the same kind of thing right here in our city uh, as well. Uh, yeah, uh, Brennan uh, asked if we chat about what we do, and we certainly don't want this to be a, oh, look at us. That's so great. Uh, but just, I think, just an invitation that this is something we found a lot of life in. I'm going to do most of the talking, but you'll grab the mic if you have things you want to say. So we, uh, this is our happy family. Everyone looks great in this photo except me. Um, <laughs> this is the one I got sent to put up. Uh, so we uh, have participated in an organization in our city called Open Homes, um, which is just a chance for Christians to reclaim um, the sense of hospitality. Ancient Christians would have had a room in their home dedicated for when Christ showed up in the guise of a stranger. And so it's a way for us to reclaim that by hosting... Um, oh, Eric, you are here. We should have got you up, but... Anyway, so Erickson, um, to, to host to people uh, for on a short-term basis. So um, this is a picture we hosted a few people. Uh, Dasale just moved out. Dasale is just sitting to the left of me, um, and he is from Eritrea. 
and he lived with us um, for about six months. Typically, open homes is about a three to four month kind of hosting situation where you in your home host somebody or a young family or a group of uh, siblings. We can just host one and uh, help them kind of get settled and reoriented, often with kind of a circle of friends around you helping that family get set up. Um, and uh, the nice thing is you can try it, and if it sucks, you don't have to do it again. It's a three-month commitment. Anyone can do anything for three months. And maybe you say, you know what, this is just not the space we need to be in. Maybe you say, wow, this is great. There's some pretty cool stories of people in our city who have renovated their homes to be able to host more people because they've just got a bug for the life that this can be. Um, one of my favorite authors talks about how in North America, our community muscles have atrophied. So this is one little way that we're trying to get back in shape. And uh, if you are curious about what this looks like and who all these other people are, uh, come talk to whichever one of us you find least intimidating. Uh, <laughs> do you want to say anything? I think I just say too, to all my introvert friends out there, I thought this would be really hard for me to do. And I think I've found a way to make it really sustainable. And I think the three months, three months, on three months off has worked for me. And if you're curious about what that looks like living with other people, I would love to talk to you about that too because it's worked for us and it's been quite a joy to have new people in our house and the life that they bring into our house has been really special, so. Like pretty good food too. Thanks, guys. Now, just in closing here, and if we keep reading in Joshua 24, because Joshua is a bit of a cliffhanger, right? Teresa left with us here. Like, Joshua has this compelling speech, and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But what did the people decide to do? How did they respond? Well, let's figure out. Okay, so we'll go to Joshua 24 again. We'll read the next couple of verses, 16 to 18. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out of the Father and our fathers out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now you'd think this was the reaction Joshua was going for with his inspiring speech. But his response tells us he didn't want this to be a snap decision. He actually says, Mm, not so sure you should actually choose this one. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? No, we want to go with God. He's like, really? Are you sure you can do this? They're like, yeah, we can. And Joshua says, okay, well, your witness is against yourself that you've chosen to serve the Lord. The Israelites were signing off on the terms and conditions of God's covenant, making themselves responsible for their own actions moving forward. And we read this wonderful conclusion that Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Unless you read the rest of the Bible. The very next book is the book of Judges. Chapter 1 kind of summarizes what happened in Joshua. Chapter 2, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, the ones who served the Lord, right? Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so every new generation has to make a decision of its own. We have to make our own decision. I think about our, our junior and our senior youth here this morning. I think about our young adults and realize that we all have to embrace this path for ourselves. It doesn't matter what the generation before us did. It doesn't matter what our parents have decided to do. It matters what we decide to do. And so that's part of what we're doing here creating a space where we can encourage one another to make that decision because the choice is ours. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua's words continue to present us with a choice and a challenge to serve God alongside and for the sake of our family, 
our church, and our world. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's my prayer that that would be our response as well. I invite you to stand, and we'll close our time together here. And as we do each week, I'll invite you to head on out through the lobby into the gym for some time of discussion. On your way out, some of our youth are going to be handing out flowers for all of the women who are here with us this morning. Lord, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful for all that it represents. And we pray that even as we, the words we read earlier in our service, uh, that you would offer your peace and your love and your compassion to each person in this place. God, we take up this challenge. We realize that this memory verse of ours puts a challenge to us, that we are to choose who will follow. It's my prayer that we would all find a way to say that in our own household, whether that's family or church family or the broader world we live in, that we would find a way to serve you. God, I pray that you would reach out to us with that challenge, invite us to follow you and empower us to do, to follow through on the commitments that we make. In Christ's name, amen.